Hello and welcome to this episode of the Talking Techniques podcast. Our guest today has been involved in numerous discoveries and novel designs, including organ-on-a-chip technology, the discovery of the first angiogenesis inhibitor compounds to enter clinical trials for cancer, nanotechnologies to assist clot targeting therapeutics, and many more. He is also the founding director of the Wies Institute and is heading up the Institute's response to the coronavirus pandemic. So we have a lot to cover today. Without further ado, Donald Ingber, please can you introduce yourself and the Wies Institute? Hi, I'm Don Ingber. I'm, uh, I've been a professor at Harvard uh, Medical School and Engineering School in Boston Children's Hospital for 36 years, and I've been the founding director of the Wies Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard for the last 11. Fantastic. And um, can you can you describe the Institute's response to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic? So the Wies Institute is, is more than a research institute. It's really a translation institute. We're almost 400 full-time staff. A uh, large number have come from industry with experience, maybe 10, 20, 30 years of experience in product development. And our measures of success have always been uh, getting technologies out into the real world as quickly as possible. So intellectual property, startups, uh, licensing agreements, are all part of our measures of success, so very unusual for academia. <clears throat> so when, when the um, COVID-19 crisis emerged in, uh, in January, uh, various teams were aware of this. My own team, uh, we've been working on, on uh, leveraging our human organ on a chip technology to develop ways to accelerate drug development or actually for pandemic influenza virus, uh, you know, funded by DARPA and actually NIH, uh, leveraging this technology for that purpose. So we very quickly pivoted literally one day, I think it was January 16th, mid-January, uh, after the coronavirus gene sequence was published, we engineered a pseudo-type virus, meaning it's not infectious, but it expresses the spike protein that mediates it the virus binding to cells so we can measure entry. And we started to work on it there and have been working on that ever since. And I can go into that in more detail later. Uh, but many other groups uh, across the Institute, when uh, this crisis really started to, started to build in mid-March, and Harvard University, as many other universities, told all the academic groups that we had to close down or phase down research operations in a matter of days, so over five days. Um, we, many of us, pivoted and focused on, you know, how could we leverage our know-how capabilities, novel technologies, to develop diagnostics, therapeutics, vaccines, uh, and basically a small percentage of our staff, we arranged to keep working. Harvard allowed that if it's COVID-19 related. Uh, and that's gone from about 25 to 40 people uh, that are on site. We stagger them. We space them with social distancing. Uh, and, and, and in addition to our own technologies, all of the hospitals in the area have reached out to me and many others around helping with uh, technology development to replace nasopharyngeal swabs, which are in short supply, uh, N95 face masks, face shields, etc. So there's actually a huge effort going on at the Beast Institute around COVID-19 right now. It's really interesting to hear you mention the involvement of your organ-on-a-chip technology. 
Um, if we could just go back slightly to the, the beginning of that technology and then we can explore it further, building towards its application in, in COVID-19 slightly later on. So can you tell us about the invention of that organ-on-a-chip technology? What was your inspiration for that tech? It's a long story, actually. I mean, my whole career, the novel angle I've had on scientific vision is that I've always believed that mechanical forces are as important as chemicals and genes, and I've had to develop novel experimental systems to, to prove that, which we've done, <clears throat> and now it's, I think, pretty widely accepted around the world. Um, one of the techniques we developed was over 20 years ago, over, God, it was even more, it was in the mid-1990s, uh, George Whitesides and I uh, began to apply computer microchip manufacturing techniques to fabricate culture environments for living cells where we could control their physical environment and, and um, how far they stretch or round up, for example. And that was the beginning of, basically, it's a nanotechnology method for fabricated microchip uh, technology where you have control over features at the nanometer size scale. And, and you could then build things at the micrometer size scale. And that's the same size scale that living cells live, live and function at. And so that was the beginning of the intersection of, of, of microengineering and cell biology. And we started to make uh, substrates that cells could adhere to that would control their shape and function. Then George started to use that fabrication technique in combination with, he'd make molds with, with polymers that were rubber-like, optically clear materials, like silicon rubber, that you could make uh, devices with hollow channels that were less than a millimeter in diameter. And that has actually helped, uh, many groups have, started, have used that, it's called microfluidics, because you could put fluids through that and you don't have turbulence, because turbulence is a function of the size of the channel. And at that side, you just get smooth laminar flow, and that's been used to miniaturize instrumentation in many industries. We in the, got it in about year 2000, started 2001, started to use, actually late 1990s, started to use that to culture cells under a fluid flow environment that's much like in our bodies. Move about, uh, got another five years later, seven years later, and um, I developed a, a microfluidic device that we called a spleen on a chip to model uh, cleansing of blood pathogens, which, by the way, is another technology that we have developed that is being commercialized and hopefully uh, will be moved to clinical trials in the COVID-19 crisis. And I won't go into that technology, but I'll just say that it, it had to do with flowing blood and sterile saline next to each other coming into two channels of the chip. And because you only have laminar flow without turbulence, the blood and saline don't mix. And we, were, and we were able to take blood that was contaminated with bacteria and then use magnetic beads that were bound, coated with a protein that binds pathogens and pull them with a magnet out from the blood into the saline as a blood cleansing therapy. And we called it a spleen on a chip because conceptually it mimicked how the spleen cleansed the blood. About a year or two later, I was at a meeting, and a, and a scientist who actually trained with George Whitesides and myself named Shu Takayama, who's now in Emory, um, he had a talk where his 
his postdoc had developed what he called a lung on a chip. And it didn't have cells in it either, uh, but it was a hollow channel that was structured the size of the small airways in our lungs called the bronchioles. And he put a little droplet of liquid to mimic mucus, a mucus plug going through. And this chip made a noise that is exactly the same noise that when I went to medical school, I was trained to listen for through my stethoscope that's called a crackle. And when you hear a crackle, it means someone has fluid on the lungs, uh, fluid in the lungs and maybe, you know, pneumonia. And I was amazed by this. And when his postdoc, Dan Ha, who, who did that work, applied to work, when his graduate student applied to, to a postdoc with me, I met with Dan and I said, this is fantastic, but why don't we try to build like a real living lung on a chip? And my idea was to have the lining cells of the air sac of the lung, or the alveolus, on, on one side of a, of a, a porous membrane, or called the ma extracellular matrix, like in our body, and have human lung capillary cells on the other side, the blood vessel cells, and to recreate what we call the alveolar capillary interface inside one of these fluid channels. And that was the beginning of the organs on chip in the way it is used now, which are microfluidic devices lined by living human cells, where by having, we have two parallel channels with a membrane that's porous, coated with matrix, and we could have your lung lining cells on top and your capillary cells on the bottom, and we get a tissue-tissue interface, which is what's the difference between a cells, which are tissue, which is a group of cells that provide a specific function, and an organ where you have two or different types of tissue, tissues that interface and new functions merge, where almost always there's a blood vessel tissue because you have to have oxygen nutrients feeding it. But we've now made almost 15 or 20 different organ chips. We have intestine chips. We have uh, kidney chips, we have liver chips, and so on. So, during the development of um, those initial organona chips, I mean, this sounds like incredibly complex technology that's happening at an at a nano scale. Um, what were some of the complications or challenges that you faced when you were developing those um, those initial organs on a chip? So the the fabrication. You know, the devices are, although we have capability of fabricating at the nano scale, um, we actually build these on the micro scale, so the micron to millimeter, you know, sub-millimeter scale. Um, the fabrication is pretty straightforward, and it's now being commercialized. And I should say there are other groups around the world, many groups now, that are building different versions of organs on chips or tissues on chips um, with different approaches. And uh, this is being... My technology is being commercialized by a company, and it's now even doing mass manufacturing of these of these chips with an alternative method. So they, this can be scaled. When we first started, uh, the challenges I mentioned that you know I really my, my vision of science is that mechanical forces are are as important as chemical regimes, and so we wanted to incorporate the physical environment into these devices that would mimic that of the living organ. So, for example, with the lung, not only did we want to have the physical environment of fluid flow flowing over the capillary cells, we wanted to have the air-liquid interface that happens in your lung, and we wanted to have breathing motions, because when you breathe in and out, your, your alveoli air sacs expand, and when you, breathe, when you breathe in and when you breathe out, they, they contract back, and it's well known that those distension, cyclic distension, 
has important impacts on gene expression, biochemistry, functionality, etc. Same with the intestine and peristaltic, same with skin when you move it and it stretches and so on. And so one of the biggest challenges is how do we make cells inside this little rubber chip uh, breathe? And so, you know, we, we we're able to work out ways where we can put air over the, uh, the lung cells and continues to feed just through the lower capillary cell line channel, just like in our bodies, and that works. And then to get the breathing motions, we came up with a trick where we made hollow chambers on either side of the central two channels that you could apply cyclic suction to. And, and, it, and because it turns out the polymer is flexible. So when we apply suction, the sidewalls of the central channels of cells literally bow out and stretch the membrane with the cells on it. And when we release the suction, they retract. And we could do it at the same rate and degree as when people breathe. And the other side is that really when you want to model something like COVID-19, uh, you want to model the inflammatory response. And so there you want to be able to flow immune cells through or, and also have tissue-associated immune cells, and we've done that as well. If you flow immune cells through a chip of the lung, for example, and it's a healthy lung, they just flow by like in your blood. But if you put uh, influenza virus or, you know, bacteria on the upper part in the airspace, like a pneumonia, the immune cells stick to the endothelium, they migrate through up to the airspace, and they actually kill the, the uh, infected cells. And you could visualize this all in real time. So I always I like to say that the organ chips provide sort of a window on molecular scale activities inside living human cells, inside a, a tissue and organ context. And that's really, I think, some of the great powers of the technique. Okay, so so let's talk about the um, their use with with COVID now. So you mentioned that you were initially using a a certain set of organona chips for influenza. Um, am I right in understanding that they would be the lung model um, chips? And um, if so, how easy was it to pivot them across to focus on the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus as opposed to the influenza? So. Um... You are right. We used influenza with our lung airway chip, which is sort of a model of the, of the bronchioles and the small, small uh, airway part of, the, of your lung. Uh, and uh, we had done influenza in that, and we had done uh, infection with various strains of virus, and we could mimic the virulence seen in patients. We could also uh, mimic the cytokine responses, which you, people hear with COVID-19 that cytokine storm, these are the inflammatory molecules released when you have an infection, and they can trigger, you know, multi-organ damage and failure that can lead to morbidity and death. And um, and so we could we can measure that, and we can, we can measure, you know, uh, I mentioned the immune response, and we could see the immune cells uh, actually fighting off the virus. We even did drugs in that chip, the airway chip with influenza, and we could mimic not only the same efficacy as seen in patients, but also the same time window, the therapeutic time window. For example, Tamiflu is only recommended for the first 48 hours after infection, and it's known it has less activity thereafter. We see exactly the same thing in chips. We started to also use the chips to look for potential repurposing of existing approved drugs that are approved for other applications that might be useful for influenza and we actually found some compounds that at least on the chips look like they can uh, 
synergize with Tamiflu and maybe even expand that therapeutic time window. So that was that was where we stood when uh, COVID-19 started. The challenge with COVID-19 is that the SARS-CoV-2 virus is so dangerous that it has to be used in a what's called a high biosafety BSL-3 lab that there are only a hand, well, a small number around the world. So just so you understand, we have not been able to work with the real virus in our chips yet. Um, and we are beginning collaborations with groups that have BSL-3 labs and with uh, help from DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency in the United States, we hope to get these instruments into their labs to work with the real infectious virus over the, the next weeks to months. So that's really exciting for us. However, uh, we did create this, this artificial pseudotype virus that has the protein on its surface that binds to the receptor that is known to mediate SARS-CoV-2 infection. And so we started with the airway chip, and we could actually demonstrate infection there. We also have begun to explore the alveolus chips, which are equally relevant because of uh, damage to the you know, air sac. And we also have started to study um, intestine uh, chips as well because of people have intestinal symptoms and there's some patients that starts with GI and then goes to lung. So, um, and we also have a what is basically like a lymph node type of chip, which we're exploring whether we can study immunization, vaccination. We've done that with Okay, that's absolutely fascinating. So you you said that you are testing biosimilars and other um, drugs that have already been approved. Um, there's obviously a lot of conversation around chloroquine at the moment. Um, I think obviously uh, Donald Trump has been talking about it um, and saying that it might be a solution. Have you done any tests involving chloroquine? Well, as, yes, um, and uh, but you know I, you know we haven't published this yet. So, uh, you know, but I, I will say that there that um, there are now multiple papers out in human clinical trials, none of them large, as you've probably read in the news, that basically have equivocal results. They either have minor effects of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine or um, no effects. And all I will say is that um, while you do see chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine having an effect if you use simple cell-based assays that, you know, are, have been used by virologists for years that aren't, don't mimic your real human organs. When, you know, when we do the pseudovirus in our chips, we see something that looks more like the clinical trials I just summarized. That's all I will I'll say at this point. Um, and I will say that we are working on the DARPA funding. We'll be focusing on testing uh, existing drugs and this is just starting, uh, existing FDA-approved drugs or other around-the-world-approved drugs um, in the established cell lines that the virologists use with native virus and BSL-3, as well as in our chips and hopefully with pseudovirus, as well as our organ chips, hopefully in the next coming weeks to months in BSL-3. So that, and then uh, animal models as well. That's the goal there. My own group is also working on novel therapeutics. We've been working on that for influenza and had some exciting uh, possibilities. And so we're also exploring novel therapeutics for COVID-19. So it's a very big program. Um, sorry, so you've also talked about the 
model virus that you're using to study at the moment um and you the, the main aspect of that is the spike protein that you've recreated um are there any other aspects of the SARS-CoV-2 um, that you would tr like to try and incorporate into that model virus um, that you could potentially try and target? Um, or is it that spike protein is the uh, sort of the key key aspect? The, the, the type virus, you know, I'll be the first to admit is, is a first attempt at just beginning to explore what's going on, and it is suboptimal. It is not what we want. It does not stimulate. It does not replicate. It does not harness the cell machinery or cause the cell, cytotox, cell toxicity or cytokine. So it's just really a first attempt to get running. The only thing I will say is that we found similar results when testing drugs using that in um, the cell, simple cell-based assays that, uh, that virologists use as the native virus. So that's interesting. But uh, we, you really have to move to the real virus uh, in VSL3 to do meaningful work, especially on the host response to the infection, like the cytokine inflammatory cascade, which is really what is the, the, the lethal part of this disease. Now, all that said, we are going to explore other uh, related coronaviruses that we can use in our lab that are not as dangerous, that might have a little bit more relevance. They replicate. They have some cytokine cascades, but they're really different. So I, I don't want people to think that you can use these other models to fully mo model diseases. You really got to get all these technologies into DSL-3 labs, at least in the near term. Okay. Um, and in the context of um, sort of 3D cell cultures, um, like organoids and spheroids, um, where do you see... Um, organ on a chip technology sitting within that do you think that there's a way to um, integrate studies using both types of technology um, do you think they complement each other or do you think that they exist almost in a sort of competition you need to be using one or the other oh no they're absolutely complementary and i'm a i'm pragmatic about this everyone in this, all the scientists that i know are just want to solve this problem and i don't care which model works we use organoids to basically feed some of our chips. That's how we build our intestine chips. So we grow organoids, then break them up and put them in the chips so that we can get access to the apical cell of the the apical surface of the intestinal cells and watch absorption and delivery with the lung cells. Uh, people are doing that as well. Um, but the organoids have, you know, I think are very valuable in terms of a much higher throughput model. So for a front end, for quick screening, you know, we're going to explore that. Other people are exploring that. But when it comes, the, the advantage of the organs on chip are the fidelity of, of, of replication of human uh, clinical responses and therapeutic responses. And, and I'll, I'll take you through this. I mean, one is that you can measure uh, the inflammatory responses by collecting samples from the vascular channel over time in these chips and also integrating immune cells that are flowing through into these chips. And, and, and we have already shown that this really replicates in vivo level responses in many different publications. The more novel, even more important one is that in a recent paper with another chip, with our bone marrow chip, we showed that we could replicate clinically relevant drug exposures. Remember, when, when you test drugs in, in labs with cells in a dish, you bathe them in it for days and you see what happens. When you inject a drug into a patient, the, the drugs go up very
very high level, and then they lower down. And then you give it again each day, and it goes up and down. And, it, and, and each drug has its own profile of drug exposure, how the drug's levels vary over time in the circulation and how they're distributed. This is called pharmacokinetics. We showed in a recent paper that we could mimic the clinical pharmacokinetics of a drug that was measured in human patients and mimic the, in this case, this, there were novel toxicities depending on whether they gave the drug over two hours or 48 hours. We could mimic the clinical responses. That I don't, that, that we, we have because we could do flow and we have these tissue tissue interfaces because drugs in your body have to cross out of the blood vessel, cross that cell layer, and then into the tissue level, the tissue environment, so the other cells, and we have all that. And also, we can link different chips together, which we've done recently. So you could have a liver chip and a kidney chip, and you could actually see metabolism and clearance from the blood. But, but I think the real power of the organ chip is really mimicking inflammatory responses, cytokine responses, immune responses, and also in the context of clinically relevant drug exposure. I will give you an example. We found one drug, I won't mention the name, but it, but it, it worked really well in, um, worked very well in, uh, with native SARS virus as well as the pseudotype virus in two different cell lines that are used by virologists, just cells growing in a dish. But when we tried to think about giving it to our chip, we wanted to give it at a clinically relevant dose. And we figured we'd give it at the maximum dose reported in the literature that's safe for people, that people have observed. Well, that maximum dose in people is far below the dose that shows any activity in the dish. So you, we could have worked for years on the dish and gotten all excited, but it's not until you start thinking about how it would be administered in humans. And that's how we administer it to these chips. And, and so that's another, I think, great, you know, great advantage by being able to do it dynamically under flow. Yeah, that's a huge advantage for d drug discovery. I hadn't, have to say I hadn't considered that um, at all, the, the pharmacokinetics of it um, and how that was applied. Front end, and I think a lot can be done quickly there. There are other models that are simpler than ours that are kind of 3D organ chip type models that, that may be useful. Um, but, you know, th that's what I see, you know, from all of my experiences, really some of the unique unique attributes, the inflammatory response, the host response, the, the level of differentiation, the specialization of function we get on the chips. Just as an example, we get exactly the same ciliary motion and mucociliary clearance of mucus and mucus production in our airway chips like in patients. And so, you know, one of the problems with COVID-19 is that you get, you know, thicker, more mucus. Uh, we've, we're modeling cystic fibrosis on chips for the same reason. Um, you know, and, and so that's something that you can't really study in an organoid. We are testing drugs, some drugs that would be delivered through aerosol or nebulizer through the airspace. You can't really do that on organoid either. So if I um, look for a sort of a current example that's, um, or an another example that's, that's most similar to that model, um, I would really be looking to animal models i suppose in that that's where you can um well previously until until this point until this technology you could administer drugs and then see how they flow through the body you still get that pharmacokinetic differences but then you don't have the specificity um that you will have in your organ um organ on a chip technology as they're not based on 
human human cell lines. Um, so with that in mind, how long do you think it will take before your type of technology um, begins to replace animal model testing um, as the go-to mode for therapeutic testing? Well, first of all, I just want to clarify, we don't use cell lines, we use primary cells, and we often use patient cells. And, and, and you know, um, you've got to realize that every study on animal models, whether it's by the FDA, science, academics, or pharma, says that the animal models are more often wrong than right at predicting results when it goes to humans. And it's often 70% wrong, in some areas higher. So, so um, you know, one has to question whether, you know, if you're using that as the benchmark, it's not, it's not the greatest uh, system right now, but it's the best we have right now in the past. So um, the other thing is that there, there, there are many models where there are no animal models, or it would be unethical to do human, uh, you know, even human testing. For example, you know, uh, we're working on radiation countermeasure therapies, and you're not going to test that in humans ever. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and even non-human primates are not necessarily the best model for that, and the ethics are getting, ethical challenges are huge. So um, it's not simply replacing mouse models or rat models, because um, there, there are many cases where there are no models in animals. But with the ones that where there are animal models, there are we've already had papers showing where drugs, you know, went through animal models, had no toxicity, went to humans, and patients died in clinical trials. And we can we can mimic that on the chip. It's, it's well known that in, even in clinical trials, that often drugs fail when tested in large numbers, but when they analyze it afterwards carefully, they'll find genetic subpopulations that responded better. And if they're lucky, they'll redo a trial with that group and be able to show get approval for you know a narrow application with a narrow uh, population. With organs on chips, you can make chips from individuals or patient populations and potentially, you know, shorten the process, increase the likelihood of success, decrease the cost by developing drugs for specific groups. Um, you know, there, the, the animal models, you can measure pharmacokinetics and metabolism and distribution, but it's different, often different than in humans. You're still extrapolating. Um, there are toxicities that were found only in human because, for example, an ion, a, a transporter on the kidney that clears drug in animals is different than humans, so you would just never see it in animal models. So people know the animal models are, are, not, are not optimal, and that's saying, you know, that's making it nicer than it really is. So, you know, the question of, you know, when will this be adapted, it is progressively being... Uh, explored by many different pharmaceutical companies and biotech and regulatory agencies around the world. Um, there, you know, it's beginning with toxicity models, uh, but really disease models for efficacy, I think, are equally important, and, and groups are exploring that as well. But it's going to be slow because nobody wants to take, you know, the risk of changing the way they do things. It's just like any other industry. And they have to be convinced fairly enough that it's, you know, at least as good as animal models and equally robust. And finally, I mean, all of the regulatory agencies that I've seen at meetings on this area are very open to seeing 
pharmaceutical and biotech companies using data from chips as part of their regulatory package. It's really now up to those companies to do that. And once I think one or two do that and it works, it's proven to be effective, I think you'll see more and more uh, updates. Okay, so you, you've touched on it there, but um, what other areas do you think um, might account for why there, there has been such a, a slow uptake in some areas of life sciences um, for using organ-on-a-chip technology as opposed to animal models? If you would like to hear Donald's answer to this question, you will need to look out for part two of this episode, which we will release next month. It sparks a fascinating discussion about the incumbent systems that Donald believes hold back scientific progress and how these are being forcibly changed by the coronavirus crisis. So, look out for our next episode with Donald Ingber, which you can find in the podcast section of our website. But for now, thank you for listening, stay safe, and goodbye.